What's the opposite of fear? Hope. Hope that there's a better future, that our water would be pure, that our energy would be cheaper, that our world would be more fair and more equitable. Hope is what they are missing. And that lack of hope drives them to the sciencey sounding objections to cover up the fear that if we do fix this thing, I'm going to be on the losing end. Welcome to a special episode of the Esri in the Science of War podcast. You just heard climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe, co-director of the Climate Center at Texas Tech University, talk about how technology can aid in countering climate change skepticism and establish practical solutions to critical challenges in our communities like wildfires and the coronavirus pandemic. Your Esri chief scientist, Don Wright, lead a reasoned discourse on why climate change is a relevant and urgent threat to all of us. Catherine, warm welcome to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I am so very pleased to be with you, and we hope uh, all of you listeners have listened to our first podcast where Catherine and I talked about climate change in terms of solutions and uh, hope. And here we are taking an opportunity to do a follow-up, especially since Catherine was a fantastic keynote speaker at our Esri User Conference Science Symposium in July. To use a climate change, sort of a climate change term, we, we had a, a, a hurricane of positive uh, response to her, her keynote. We had approximately 1,183 attendees from at least 20 countries who uh, thoroughly enjoyed her presentation, which was entitled The First Step to Tackling Climate Change. And that presentation generated about 140 uh, audience questions and comments. One of the top voted questions is how do we communicate climate change issues? For instance, we've been talking about fires, but there's also melting in the Arctic. How do we communicate those issues if we do not live there? Well, I think that the question actually reveals part of the problem. Mm -hmm. Why are you trying to get people in Iowa to care about sea level rise? Why don't you get them to care about how climate change is affecting their corn yields? Mm -hmm. And about how wind turbines are revolutionizing their rural economy by growing jobs and providing revenue incomes for farmers. So the problem we have is so often we talk about climate change in distant terms. We talk about Greenland, Antarctica, polar bears. We talk about things and places that are far away. So that actually decreases its relevance to our lives. Instead, we have to look at how it affects us where we live. And although climate change is a global problem, it interacts with and exacerbates the issues we already have where we live. So if we live in California, wildfire is at the forefront of our minds, but we also care about water because half of California's water comes from snowpack in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Mm -hmm. And the warmer the winters get, the more precipitation falls as rain, the less falls as snow, the less snowpack there is. What if you live in Texas or Louisiana or Alabama along the Gulf Coast, sea level rise is huge and stronger, bigger hurricanes with a lot more rainfall. If you live in the Midwest, you've been hit by massive flooding. A year ago last March, they were under huge emergencies in the Midwest because of flooding. The Northeast has also seen a lot of flooding and sea level rise. Up north, in across the Arctic, Alaska, Northern Canada, permafrost thaw is a huge issue. The ground literally under people's feet is thawing and crumbling and turning into just a swamp or a quagmire. And 
all of these things are happening because of the same problem, but they're affecting us in different ways depending on where we live. So it's really, really important to understand, to learn more about how climate change is affecting you where you live. And there's two great resources people can go to depending on how far you want to go. First of all, our global weirding series on YouTube has one episode for every part of the US and one for Canada too, that gives you kind of the headlines on what's happening where you live. And then if you wanna dig further, the National Climate Assessment has a chapter for every region of the US and a chapter for every sector too, like um, buildings and agriculture and water and tribal nations. And so you can dig into that to hear more about what's happening in the place where you live. So if you live in Iowa, unless you have lots of family in Florida, don't talk about Florida, talk about Iowa. One of the topics that uh, I'd like for us to, to get into is this topic of wildfires. I am sitting here in Redlands, California, and as our governor uh, in California says, if you want to know that climate change is real, come to California. What are we learning now about the impact of these fires uh, on weather in the short term and climate in the long term? Wildfires are increasingly in the headlines. In fact, I was just reading our researchers at Stanford were estimating that in California alone, among senior citizens, people over the age of 65, it's likely that wildfire smoke has already or will lead to 3,000 premature deaths. And of course, many other people already have pre-existing respiratory conditions. All of that is worsened by that smoke. And that really illustrates how climate change is a threat multiplier. So climate change, 99 times out of 100, is not creating something we've never seen before. Of course we've seen wildfires. Of course we've seen wildfires in California and Australia and Oregon and Washington State. We see them in Texas too. They're a natural part of the ecosystem. But as climate changes, it's loading the dice against us. And it is causing those wildfires to burn greater and greater area. Climate change has already doubled the area burned by wildfires from the 1980s to 2015. And since 2015, California has had one, two, three, four, or more record-breaking large wildfires, each one bigger than the one before. The Thomas fire back in December 2017 broke the record for the biggest wildfire on record in California. That record was broken in August, the subsequent year. It was smashed in November that year. And of course, it was just broken again in 2020. Climate change is drying out the vegetation. So when that fire happens, there's more kindling, so to speak. Imagine if you have a pile of mostly green wood and you toss a match on that pile. What happens? Not much. Then imagine if you have a pile of bone dry kindling and you toss a match on that pile, what happens? Mm -hmm. A conflagration with sparks everywhere. That's the difference between climate change and no climate change. It is truly uh, heartbreaking. So I'm, I'm wondering if we can circle back now to one of the top rated questions from the science symposium. And this question is, what are key facts that we can tell people who are skeptical about climate change and think that this is just something that happens normally in the global system? Isn't it all just natural? So the concepts of hope and natural cycles have everything to do with each other, although we might not think they do on the surface. 
99.9% of the reason why people reject climate change has nothing to do with science that we've known since the 1850s. That's how long we've known that digging up coal and burning it produces heat trapping gases that are wrapping an extra blanket around the planet, causing it to run a fever. 99.9% .9 of the time we reject it because we don't think the impacts matter much to us, but we think the solutions pose an immediate and imminent threat. So we are told that the only solutions are negative and punitive, but here's the thing. Our natural defense mechanism as humans is we don't want to be the bad guy. We want to be the good guy, so to speak. If we say it's a real problem, but I don't want to fix it, that makes us a bad person. So our subconscious defense mechanism is to reject the reality of the problem because then it makes us the smart person. And we're not bad. We're just being skeptical and hard-nosed about it. And those are positive things to be, not negative. So what we do is we look for excuses. And the number one excuse that people use is it's just a natural cycle. That is the number one sciencey sounding excuse. Now, most people who say that don't even know what a natural cycle is. So let me explain. A natural cycle is like a seesaw or a teeter-totter. It moves heat around the Earth's system from north to south, east to west, ocean to atmosphere, and back again. So if one part of the world is getting warmer at the expense of another, that's a natural cycle. But if the entire planet is warming, the atmosphere, the ocean, the land surface, the cryosphere, which is all of the ice, if the whole thing is warming, there is no way that could be a natural cycle. It's physically impossible. Natural cycles can't create heat out of nothing. That would violate conservation of energy, a fundamental law on which the entire universe is based. But why do we hear this so often? It's because it's the most plausible deniability for us. Oh, don't you know it was warmer back in dinosaur times? It's always been cooler and warmer before. We have nothing to do with it. Therefore, we don't have to fix it. So what is the emotion driving this? The emotion is fear. Fear because we fear what we think are the only solutions are negative. What's the opposite of fear? Hope. Hope that there's a better future. Hope that the solutions might actually fix things, that our lives would be better in the future, that our air would be cleaner, that our water would be purer, that our energy would be cheaper, that our world would be more fair and more equitable, that it's not a zero-sum game where we have to give up something in order for anybody else to benefit, but that we could all benefit together from better technology, from more sustainable lives, improving our health, improving the quality of our life, improving our connectivity to each other, which we're so fragmented and separated today. Hope is what those they are missing. And that lack of hope drives them to the sciencey sounding objections to cover up the fear that if we do fix this thing, I'm going to be on the losing end. So mm. that is why hope is so essential for every single one of us. And where do we get that hope from? We get it from feeling like we can act and feeling like our actions make a difference and feeling like acting together makes a difference. And that's why it's so important to recognize that the most important thing we can do is to use our voice, to use our voice to talk about why it matters, about what we're actually doing ourselves or our communities to fix it. And there's so many inspiring stories about that. Use our voice to advocate for change in our company or corporation or organization, our school, our university, our family, our congregation, whatever groups we're part of, using our voice to advocate for that change and using our voices to vote for change too, because we live in a democratic society. That is how we can make a difference. And if you look at history, just cast your mind back through history, what do you think of? A lot of what you think of 
are the names of individual people who turn the tide in exceptional circumstances. Systems are made up of people, and that is why every single person has the potential to make a difference. Fantastic response, because I think all of us now are thinking about our voice, whether we will really be heard. Many of us are thinking more about talking to our neighbors about all of these issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, I understand that you have been uh, working with some uh, incredible uh, maps recently that, that speak to this issue of racial equity and social justice. Can you tell us about them? So a number of years ago in California, we overlaid high resolution projections, which is what I do, high resolution climate projections of extreme temperatures with where people lived and worked. And what they found was that lower income people, Hispanic people, and black people were more affected by extreme heat than people who were white or Asian in California. And when I worked in Chicago, the emergency response people in Chicago said, oh, well, we staff the south side of Chicago by the thermometer. If you know Chicago, which you do, I know, Don, and I do too since I went to University of Illinois, um, there's a big socioeconomic divide between the South and the North End. And in the South End, there's not a lot of trees. There's a bigger urban heat island effect. There's a lot of poverty to where people can't pay their AC bills or they are scared to open the windows at night when it's really hot. And so there's a lot of health impacts. And there really is a strong component of inequality and injustice in driving those impacts that you can see when you start to overlay the maps. So I am super excited about the fact that we've been working on a lot of high resolution data for the US, looking at extreme temperatures and rainfall and other things like that for weather stations as well as on a grid, because this climate data is going to be able to be overlaid with a lot of the vulnerabilities that already exist, but that we weren't aware of. And if we don't know about them, how can we do anything about it? A lot of us are thinking about the intersection between economic conditions and, and poverty is how do you see this uh, intersection of climate change and poverty and economic equality? Because it's a reality that we have an economic divide, we have a digital divide, and do you see a path to reducing poverty as part of dealing with climate change? Mm -hmm. Well, that's actually the reason I am a climate scientist. So for a long time, I thought of climate change as uh, only an environmental issue that only affects the environment, but not people. And I thought to myself, well, obviously we need to care about the environment and those who are environmentalists, I wish them well in their work. But I thought to myself, well, you know, I really want to do something that would help people. So then I serendipitously took this class in undergraduate on climate change. And it completely shocked me to find out that climate change is a human issue. It is a justice issue. It is massively unfair. It disproportionately affects the poorest and most vulnerable people in the world, right here where we live, as well as on the other side of the world. And it is, again, it's the great threat multiplier. We can't address any of the extremely basic United Nations Sustainable Development Goals without fixing climate change. Climate change disproportionately affects the poorest people, not just poorest, but also the most marginalized and the most vulnerable. Climate change disproportionately affects women and children more than men. It disproportionately affects people of color, especially in the United States. It disproportionately affects people who are um, indigenous minorities. And it disproportionately, again, affects people who are poor as opposed to people who are middle class or rich.
So here in the US, for example, we had Hurricane Harvey. We know that climate change is making hurricanes stronger with a lot more rain than they would have had otherwise. So with Hurricane Harvey, it's estimated that almost 40% of the rain that fell during that storm wouldn't have happened if the same storm had occurred 100 years ago. And those record-breaking floods, over 50 inches of rain in some locations in the greater Houston area, they flooded Superfund sites where hazardous waste was being stored. Now, we know that waste and dump sites are predominantly located in poorer neighborhoods where people don't have the political clout to protest. And in Houston, a lot of those poor neighborhoods are where people of color live. So they are we're already living next door, side by side, to these dumps. And then along comes Hurricane Harvey. It floods them, massive hazardous waste and toxic pollutants running through the streets, getting into their houses. They already didn't have the same access to health care that people did in richer neighborhoods. Then they're overexposed to pollutants and toxins. And it just exacerbates the problems they already have. It is a totally vicious cycle. And that's just one example. We could talk about how in Chicago, 30% of the population is African-American, but over 70% of the deaths from coronavirus have been African-American. Why? Because exposure to air pollution worsens your vulnerability. Air, air pollution comes from burning fossil fuels, the same thing that's causing climate change. And people who are poorer and people who are marginalized tend to live in areas and neighborhoods that are more exposed to air pollution as well. It is a vicious cycle. And if we care about poverty, about social justice, about Black Lives Matter, about indigenous rights, about gender equality, if we care about any of those things, by definition, we do care about climate change because climate change makes every one of those worse. So often with, with uh, governments, especially our local governments, it seems as if Many of these officials focus on shorter term issues, especially issues that coincide with their time in office, instead of working towards solutions uh, that are longer term, such as what we have been discussing in terms of racial equity, environmental injustice, and of course, uh, the complicated issue of climate change. Even if we get through this year 2020, it's not going to go away in 2021. <laughs> no. You are so right. And I think that the short nature of the average political term is a significant detriment to fixing these large, long haul problems, so to speak, that we have in our society, of which injustice is one and climate change is another. What is really important is to illustrate the short-term benefits of action. Psychology and neuroscience both show that we humans are much more motivated by a small short-term reward than we are by a larger long-term reward or even by a larger long-term bad or nasty consequence. So all too often, we're trying to go long-term. We're trying to say, you want to avoid the catastrophe that won't happen until a long time after you're out of office. That's not going to motivate a politician. But if you can say, look, clean energy is producing eight times more jobs than fossil fuels. Don't you want to increase jobs? Don't you know the number one fastest growing job in the U.S. is wind energy technician or solar panel installer, which it has been off and on the last five years? Or don't you want to show that you're taking wildfire seriously? Don't you want to protect people now? Figuring out what those short-term goals are for each of us, our neighbor, our family, as well as politicians, even more so, I think is key to affecting change. What does make a difference is showing people that there's a different way to do it that's better. 
When a new iPhone comes out, there aren't hundreds of people lined up to get it because somebody wagged a finger at them and told them in a judgmental tone that they were using something inferior and they really had to use a better one or else they'd be a bad person. They're lining up to get the new technology because it's better. And so showing people that there's a better way to do things that leads to, again, cleaner air and cleaner water and more healthy lives for ourselves today and our kids as well as in the future, that really can affect a change in our culture. People often say, well, what are solutions that are already happening today that I could talk about? And my answer is they are all around us if we look for them. But here's two good places where you can find them. There's a fantastic new book that just came out called Climate Courage by Andreas Karelas. He runs an organization that helps nonprofits put solar on their roofs, but he's collected all kinds of inspiring, hopeful stories of what's already happening today. And if you read that book, you will have plenty to share. And learning about these and sharing them is also part of what gives us hope. Thank you so much, Catherine. That was fantastic. I've loved this interview and this time with you. Thank you so much again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Esri and the Science of War podcast. And thanks to Catherine Hayhoe for sharing practical solutions that we can enact now to fight the biggest systemic threats of our time. To learn more about location intelligence and solutions for sustainability, visit esri.com.